Welcome to Roll to Save, the RPG history podcast, Dungeons and Dragons. Welcome to our round table for this, our Dungeons and Dragons episode. I have with me as usual, Steve and Jason, my trusty co-hosts. How are you doing, guys? Good, thanks, yeah. Very well. Good to be here. We also have a special guest, a world-famous games designer, no less, Mr. Corey Young. How are you, Corey? I'm well, thanks. I'm so glad to be here. Excellent. Well, we're very glad to have you. So, Corey, given that you're a guest, we'll ask you the same question that we asked the guys last week. What was your first experience with role-playing games? What was it that dragged you into the hobby? I'd been in comic book stores and seen some of these games on the shelf that had dragons and beasts on them and so on. I thought, wow, that's, that's interesting. And then that's right about the time that the <laughs> Dungeons and Dragons started making the popular press because of all the bad news and so on, the, the, the trumped up bad news about it. So, you know, that, therefore it was a bit more enticing. Now this was, um, well, I'll talk about years. This was 1983. It's my senior year of high school. My first thing, I picked up a used copy of Tunnels and Trolls. And the copy I had came with a bunch of cardstock pathways that you could, you know, assemble into a dungeon and so on. That looked enough like Dungeons and Dragons for my taste. And just scoured through the rules of that. And I was intrigued. You know, I was, I was really, I thought, this looks like something I could really enjoy. And then I, I you know, began to understand there was no internet and so on, but just from, I guess articles in magazines that I had read started to get the idea of how the game was played and then a friend of mine invited me to join a group that had been that he had been playing for a few weeks but they were playing RuneQuest so RuneQuest was actually my first the first RPG that I played and I played that for for many years but a year and a half later uh, one of the other guys in the group decided he wanted to try to run D&D and that was version two at that time. So we, that's what, so it wasn't much longer, uh, much later than that, that I started playing D&D. And do you still play it nowadays now that the fifth edition's out or are you, because you're a proper grown up, do you spend your time doing other things? Well, there was a very long break in, in there after college and then having kids and so on. Yeah. So the, that's a, a, probably a, a pretty familiar story to a lot of people. So there was uh, at least a decade in there where I didn't play anything for quite a while. And then got back in with D&D 3.5. And that was a good experience with a bad group um, or a bad premise. I'll, I'll, we can talk about that later. And then kind of faded away, moved over toward board games for quite a while, uh, just because of time constraints. I could not commit to a regular scheduled group. So I switched over to board games for quite a while. And then when I was on the road with (laughs) a company with which Ian is familiar, I started playing Pathfinder, the organized play for Pathfinder, and enjoyed that quite a bit. Skipped four, skipped D&D version four entirely. 
and kind of really fell out of love with Pathfinder and was especially the organized play. And then I started to hear about this critical role thing and I watched it for a bit and saw a much cleaner, better version of Dungeons and Dragons. And it got me back in. But to be honest, I have yet to play five. I've played around with five uh, using D&D Beyond. But, and I'm getting ready to DM my first game of D&D five. But I haven't, I have not yet, I have yet to play it. In the preparation for this, I went into uh, Barnes & Noble and got a copy of the, the starter set, and it is so polished in comparison to what was released all those years ago. I mean, you've got a, a 32-page guide that gets you started, and if you're the DM, it's got an adventure that talks you through every single step of the way, and it's actually fairly decent. It's not some sort of throwaway thing that's uh, written on the back of a of a napkin. Fifth edition certainly appears to be much more polished than, than what went before. What was your first experience with D&D? Uh, well, yeah, we just talked about it last time. So I came from kind of the wargaming, pushing like Napoleonics figures around and stuff like that and went to this club and with like-minded nerds. And uh, one guy brought along sort of D- well, AD&D at the time. So we're talking really... The original Advanced Dungeons and Dragons Players Handbook, Dungeon Master's Guide. So that was my first experience. I didn't get to do the Red Box until quite a lot after, and I didn't play that much of it, if I'm honest. The sort of basic D and D expert, and it was a basic, basic expert advanced, and then something else. There was a yeah, there was, there was gods or whatever. Yeah, there was there was five of those editions. There was uh, I think there was basic expert companion, something else that escapes, yeah, me, yeah, yeah. and then immortals for yeah. You know, if you find a gold book or whatever, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so, yeah, so I didn't, I got confused because I had to go back to this kind of simplified rule set, but yeah, AD. And if we're talking years, as Corey mentioned, I'm, I'm going to trump it down to 1981. Wow. And you used to, I mean, you've played pretty much every edition, haven't you? Yeah, absolutely. Every single edition, AD, second edition, AD. So third edition that morphed into 3.5, done the Pathfinder thing, invested in fourth edition, and I've now got two fifth edition groups on, on the go at the moment. So, yeah, all of them. What about you, Steve? You, you confessed, I think that's probably the best word, last episode, that your first foray into role-playing was with Merp, which seems really masochistic. But what was your first D&D experience? It was with the same friend who was playing Merp, and he had a dog-eared copy of AD&D 2nd Edition, the original hardback one with the paladin on the front. I still, I, I kind of got a little emotional looking at, you know, looking at pictures of it recently, doing the research for this podcast, and just flicking through that book and going, oh my goodness, there's so much to this. And then maybe slightly later on, we picked up the red box to actually play and, uh, between the two of them, it, it, it was definitely a, an interesting, maybe slightly jarring experience of, of seeing the differences between the two sort of things, but it was good. I really, I really, really liked the system, and I really, really liked just the content. Even like you mentioned, it was unpolished compared to the today, but that's a, that's a whole other topic. Jason, given that you've played every edition, what's your feeling on all the changes that they've made throughout the year? There was an awful lot of complexity in sort of the original Advanced Dungeons & Dragons. The Advanced bit was pretty 
accurate. You know, you had a specific weapon, it got a bonus against chainmail, but got minuses against leather. And, and it was pretty complicated and hard to run. Focused extremely heavily on stats and the ability to kill stuff. Um, there wasn't really a skill system as such. And obviously that's kind of evolved. Second edition cleaned it up a little bit, but still was mainly in the similar sort of place. There was a few extra races and it took away some of the conflicting stuff between the basic rules and all the add-ons like Unearthed Arcana and stuff like that. Third edition was kind of the big change. That was when sort of the D20 system as it has kind of of come to be known, like the SRD and things like that, and the basis for other games. So they got a much more streamlined system. Skills became much more of a thing, and three and a half kind of carried that on. Uh, I guess the the biggest problem with three and a half is just the amount of stuff that came out for it. So the amount of supplements and extra worlds and different books for whether you were playing a divine character or, you know, a, a wizard, there was always an extra book for you. Fourth edition tried to strip that all the way back and try to appeal to my mind to the kind of computer generation, a kind of take a save point and reset your character. Lots of things were like at will powers and then encounter powers and daily powers. And it was all reset when you went, went for a sleep. If I'm honest, I, I tried really hard with fourth edition, didn't really like it. I ran it for a group, ran it for a long time for a group that I play with on a regular basis. And it just felt a little bit half-baked, I guess is probably the answer. Fifth edition, much better. In fact, I, you know, I think it's it's definitely got the potential to be my favourite edition to date. I think previous to that, 3.5 would have got the nod, but 5th just seems a lot cleaner. It's not as complicated. There's also not the power creep as well. So instead of every level, you fight against another plus one to hit and you keep going and, and you end up with these huge bonuses. That's been kind of tailored down a bit more. So it seems more sustainable, if that makes sense, over the levels. Corey, I'd be interested in your opinion because I kind of semi-joked at the beginning that you're a world-famous games designer, but you have actually designed and published a board game that um, I'll give a little shout-out to at the end because it is fantastic. But you're very much in that space of designing rules and looking at the likes of game balance. How do you feel that the current edition looks compared to the previous ones? And what do you think has driven that transformation from the very ad hoc set of rules we saw in earlier editions to this much more streamlined edition that we see today? It makes sense that it's become what it has. And the word that I would use is elegant. And that's a word that you'll hear people use when describing board games in board game design. It refers to clean, functional, logical, you know, it just makes sense. It does um, a minimalist approach to uh, doing something that does it very well. Not, you can have a, a, a something that's too sparse, you know, that, that is too open-ended. You, you know, there are some games that are much more focused on just storytelling and they're all, you know, they, they basically say, yeah, you can make stats, but don't really pay attention to them. I think five really struck a perfect balance. And I'll, I'll tell you, though, the one thing that just sold me immediately on five was the advantage-disadvantage uh, mechanism. That's just brilliant. That just makes all the difference. And the simplicity of, you know, if you have advantage and disadvantage, it's a wash. And I don't care how many advantages and how many disadvantages you have, it's a wash. That That is so strong so clever it just really set it apart 
And then the paring down of the skills, getting rid of some of the exclusion things where if you, if you don't have the skill, you can't even try it. Uh, come on, we're, we're a person in the world. Um, I should be able to try things. I very much agree. Like when I, when I looked at four, I see what they were trying to do, trying to embrace the digital. I think that was a big mistake. Anyway, I agree with the earlier points on, on all of these things. My overall point was that the system matured. It's been around for, oh, somebody tell me the years, what, 40 now? Yeah, almost um, 50. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's going to have to get good at some point, right? And those, I agree, those earlier rules were just scary. You know, well, anybody want to say Thacko? It's so much more logical now. And I like that we don't just have this add another plus two and add another plus two and stack all these things on. I watched that get abused so terribly in Pathfinder. To me, it just became unplayable. You had to keep track of so many things. And now that's just gone. And you can focus on having your high adventure and uh, doing your role playing and just get on with it. One of my favorite random rules that I, I found when researching this, and I don't remember it from back in the day, probably because I was a child at the time, but there's a very specific rule for dragons in the 1983 edition around subduing dragons. And it says that you can declare that you're going to be hitting the dragon with the flat of your sword. And if you reduce it to zero hit points, the dragon is not dead. And instead, it respects the fact that you could have killed it, but you haven't. And instead, you then cart the dragon around with you and you can go and sell it to someone. <laughs> and it's, it's so completely okay. random. And Good to I'm, know. Yeah. And <laughs> I would have used that so many times if I'd, if I'd only known. How did tame your dragon? Yeah, literally, apparently you tame your dragon by whacking it with uh, the flat of your sword. It's a sort of flippant point to make, but from what I've seen in 5th edition, it gets rid of all this randomness that has plagued earlier editions. Steve, you mentioned that you're, you've got these long nostalgic pinings for, I think it was Second Ed AD&D. Was that your favorite edition or do you have another one? You know, actually, like, I may have memories about that, probably because it was my first experience with the system in the game. But, like, honestly, if you're talking favorites, it's, it's a, that's a really, really tough question to answer. Third edition is probably the one I would consider my favorite. The fifth would be a close second, if not tied. Uh, and, and mainly third edition, mostly from nostalgia, the amount of time messing around with it, the number of books. It was the first sort of like really sort of production quality level book that we, that, that I feel like we got out of the system. And, you know, I moved to the States not long after it came out. And like you said, spending time at Barnes and Noble looking through hardback books. Uh, it was the first edition I'd play with my kids. I have fond memories of the starter edition for, for third edition because I, I picked that up and played it through with my kids for the first time. I'm not going to lie. Obviously, fifth edition to me is just a, a elegance, a great word, Corey. Like it's absolutely a more elegant. It, it's the first kind of edition you probably would feel like as, as you see it, like on a Target shelf. You probably would never have pictured seeing on a grocery store or... <laughs> Or a regular retail store, you you probably would never picture seeing AD and D in there, right? It was much more niche, and now they've actually made a game with production values enough that that, that which is still a good quality product that actually can can make it and be and be sold at a price point in a place like the Target, which is really impressive. 
Yeah, it is. It's again, it's something that I think we've all um, probably noticed is how mainstream it's become. Back in the eighties, you had the D and D cartoon, which I think was about as close to mainstream as it got. I remember as a child, uh, I had some advanced Dungeons and Dragons toys. There were these weird figures that they made of various characters from from D and D. I think it was at the time when uh, TSR realised that they basically had a license to print money, so they churned out a load of random things like this. But it never really took off the way that it's it's taken off today. And we mentioned it last episode with the likes of Games Workshop, which became a high street presence selling role-playing games, but it, it, that was still a specialist shop. You, normal people, quote-unquote, wouldn't necessarily wander in there and think, oh yeah, I'll just pick up this game. But when you've got Dungeons & Dragons on the shelves and somewhere, like Steve said, Target, and people might be roaming about and think, oh, it's in there with the board games, I might take that home and see what it's like. It really gives the, the hobby a much wider spread. And it's something that really astounded me um, when I was writing the portion for part one of this podcast, it turns out there's 40 million people worldwide who currently play D&D. And that's an absolute insane number. What do you guys think is really the, the appeal of D&D now? Because you see a lot of people who wouldn't traditionally be considered role players taking this up. I mean, I think nerd culture has come a long way. When I was a nerd, it was, you know, you get beaten up at school by the bullies, but nowadays you know the geek have inter- inherited the earth right yeah but in the 1800s jason that wasn't considered acceptable <laughs> that's true but you know i was out hunting my own dragons for sale uh <laughs> jason's used dragon emporium yeah really shoddy dragons yeah the whole nerd culture <laughs> would you buy used dragons from this man so yeah I, I don't know i think you know say nerd culture's come a long way i think it's 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 cool to be a nerd or a lot cooler than it used to be I think the prevalence of certain web web shows like you know, Critical Role and stuff like that have done a massive amount of, of good for the hobby. I mean, it's been everywhere, hasn't it? It's been on TV, whether it's you know a little sideshow in ET or whether it's Big Bang Theory, they're always playing it. That helps. Yeah, I definitely agree. Obviously, video games sort of kept kept the lights alive. Uh, probably just more general interest in, in, in things like fantasy and, and computer games like World of Warcraft going mainstream. We won't get back into fourth edition, but ultimately, like fourth edition was a was probably like an answer to things like World of Warcraft, getting people interested in fantasy games and it becoming such a mainstream thing to be interested in those types of games. Where you know it, it was more niche before then. The streaming is a more recent thing, but like I look at like the video games, just a constant stream of those over the years, and they've become they've been getting better and better and better. Obviously, books, shelves and shelves of novels and books. More recently. The additional tools like D&D Beyond is an excellent tool and, and has made things more accessible than ever before. I mean, if you think about the digital capabilities of getting books now versus when we all had to go, if you're, I mean, if you think about being in the UK or the US, we think of it as just easy to go to like your local Waterstones or to Barnes and Noble and just pick up whatever book you like. But like the, the digital capabilities of not only being able to order in places like Amazon, but also being able to actually digitally get copies of books and not even have to cart around physical books. I mean, you, you think about third edition, think about like the suitcase worth of books we all had to carry around if we wanted to bring all the things that all the options that you needed. Now it's an iPad. That means that that opens up a lot to a lot of options to people to have as many as many things that make the game more accessible for them. 
even digital character sheets, everything. There's, it, it's something I'm super interested in. I could go on and on, but I'll, I'll, I'll pass, I'll, <laughs> I'll pass the mic, but it's, it, it's, there's a lot more to it than just the, the core book nowadays. Yeah, I agree. And the tools do really help. And positive representation in the media. You know, boy, was D&D ever hamstrung, is that a word? Hamstringed? Hurt by all the negative press. And the smart aleck, uh, you know, only jerks play that or only the, you know, socially impaired play those, play those games sort of thing. We fought that for decades. And then only recently, yeah, in the past, I would say in the past decade, has that started to make a turn. There started to be a positive image of D&D and the, and the enjoyment you can get out of it. I absolutely agree with Steve's point on video games. I think that opened it up, opened up the fantasy worlds, playing a character in a fantasy world to a lot of people. And, uh, you know, again, and to Jason's point about nerd culture, moving to the fore the lord of the rings movies didn't hurt and i think the a bit of the improv culture the idea that um you know we can improvise and and act out a story i think people playing video games quite often will feel railroaded that okay i have this character and but i'm on this path that has been defined by a programmer that i have to follow and the idea that i can have a character and i can you know, have a complete sandbox and go off in the direction I want to go and tell the story this, that I want to tell. I think that, that that has appealed to a lot of people. Yeah, the video game point's really interesting because, and again, I mentioned this in part one of the podcast, but there's an awful lot that the current video games industry owes to the role-playing hobby in terms of concepts at levels, experience and whatnot, but also more fundamental ways in terms of how they're designed. If you look at most modern video games, they all have the tutorial level or levels where the player is taught the basics of the game by going through a set of easy missions. And, you know, the first thing you have to do is you have to press button A to do something. And then the next part, you've got to press button A and B in combination and so on and so forth until you kind of get what all the controls are. A lot of what you see in the likes of the new Dungeons and Dragons starter sets, pretty much follows that. But it goes way further back. I remember the red box from 1983. It includes a solo adventure in the player's manual. It's the very first thing you get. And it's kind of crude and it's basic. And if you read it today, the the format is kind of laughable. However, the principle of what it's doing is very, very solid. It's teaching you how to play the game through reading through this example. And in this case, you're wandering around some dungeon you you kill a few ghouls and you you fight an evil wizard but it lets you learn the basics of the game and it's a fantastic way of getting new players into the hobby and they've certainly taken that original concept and refined that with the the really polished products that we we see on the shelves nowadays in video game terms they have a term for that it's called scaffolding in tabletop game design they're encouraged to look at video games to show how well that works in video games for helping people understand oh okay these are how the rules work this is how i do the things i want to do that and i think dnd5 has picked up on that um with better examples yeah i knew you'd be able to put that much better than i would one of the things steve mentioned was carrying around a, a suitcase full of books for version 3.5 and i i think that's another reason there was a lot of residual anger about uh, f- fourth edition was a lot of people get very, very invested 
in third edition, bought an absolute ton of supplements. And then a few years later, they went, hey, we've got fourth edition. And the largest criticism, apart from the fact that it killed third, was it felt a lot more like a tactical war game rather than D&D as people people knew it and loved it. But one of the things that third edition really benefited from was revisiting a lot of the, the settings that uh, D&D had uh, built up over the years. And it's one of the reasons I chose not to do uh, a setting uh, section of this podcast was because there are simply so many D&D settings out there. Do you guys have a particularly favourite setting? got a couple I would like to mention, I guess. So the first alternative realm that I came across for D&D was Forgotten Realms. And that's kind of still exists. It's still there in 5th edition. You know, it's it's a quite a heavily detailed, you know, it came in a box when I first got it. And it had all these little cultural twists for your races and your classes. And, you know, even down to weapons and stuff like that. We mentioned in the previous podcast about, you know, little, you know, um, gnome hook hammers and um, Valinar double scimitars and, and you know, all these kind of little things that didn't make a huge amount of mechanical difference to the game but added a lot of color so i guess that was my first one the 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 one i think is probably my favorite is probably eberron which was i think was a result of a competition uh came out in three three and a half and it was very much more kind of it was like steampunk met film noir met dnd so you'd have like these lightning rail trains and you'd have these the whole continent was emerging from a war, which gave you some good role-playing opportunities around, you know, which side were you on and, you know, what potential atrocities did your side commit and, you know, history written by the victors and all that kind of stuff. They introduced a new race called the Warforged, who were like this um, artificial race that were constructed to do the fighting on behalf of one of the countries and had since become kind of liberated and, and a playable race. And I guess that kind of artificial people aspect's always been a big thing of sort of mine, the kind of thing that I like whether it's kind of augmentation in terms of things like the cyberpunk genre, and I'm sure we'll get to that at some point, or whether it's like almost like Captain Nemo-esque or steampunk kind of artificial people like you've got in Guild Ball with the engineers, if you've ever played that game, where they're kind of wooden, animated, all brass uh, and steam-powered potentially people. And I just thought it was quite interesting. It was a really good take on d and very different from what we kind of expected with the sort of swords and sorcery Conan the Barbarian style that kind of came before it. There's so much to, there's been so much, so much of a breadth of, like you mentioned, so many, so many settings and things like that over the last 40, 50 years of this game. I mean, definitely for, to, to echo Jason, Forgotten Realms clearly is probably going to be the canonical for a lot of people. I'm kind of sad because it's kind of what they've, they're, they're pretty much all in on that with with fifth edition um and it kind of makes me sad that we've sort of lost things like dragonlance which to me was one of the quintessential settings uh and things i remember f- most fondly reading dragons of autumn twilight the original chronicles but uh, by weiss and hickman you know those were those were just seminal novels that i read and and the entire setting was was great and it just it felt just enough different from you know, your Forgotten Realms or your Greyhawk that just felt really good. Later on, you know, I, I like how the, I like how they pivoted to different settings, things like Dark Sun, which was completely different and, and that they moved to just even things like Everon where, where you hadn't, uh, they were still fantasy. Even things like Spelljammer where you're just completely off the wall, but that, that they experimented more back in the day. I feel like they've maybe playing a bit more safe and more commercialized these days with Forgotten Realms as well as now they're doing, you know, 
settings based on Magic the Gathering, which to me is, you know, it is what it is. You know, it's part of Wizards of the Coast's brands, and there's going to be a lot of people who really like that. To me, I'm, I just feel like it's a wasted opportunity from a nostalgia perspective. I love that they're doing tie-ins with Critical Role, but then I'm biased because I'm a huge fan and we want <laughs> enough said about that one way or another. But yeah, I just, I feel like there's a lot of fans who are probably really craving for some of the old school center, uh, settings to come back. Well, I'm just wildly jealous of the amount of playing that you guys were able to do while I was uh, <laughs> getting married and having kids and being away from the hobby. I would have loved to have had the depth in, um, you know, I, I guess if I, if I were to talk about which my favorite would be, it would be Forgotten Realms, but that's just about by default. And to be honest, the DMs that I had didn't focus much on the, the larger scale and didn't focus much on the the entire world of things. It didn't come up. We we were living in the small little world that we had, and I don't think I very often got beyond level 12 while playing anything. So those big, uh, the big decisions you'd make that where knowledge of the greater world made a big difference. I, I will do a shout out, have a shout out to for um, Eberron. Keith Baker is actually a friend. Um, I got to know him through the tabletop. Uh, we both have the same publisher. And boy, what a world, what a life he's had uh, where he can, he, he is commissioned sometimes to go run a game of Eberron for people, like a corporate gig, basically. Wouldn't that be nice, right? <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> I'm yeah. up. Yeah, right? I'd just end up with people asking for their money back. It would be depressing for me. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but uh, anyway, just, it's a, it's a beautiful world we live in now, right? But th- that said, my GMs, the, or the DMs, I play so many non-D&D games um, that I, I tend to use GM more than DM, but uh, the DMs I've had were focused very much more on the smaller local color than the, than the larger intrigue of the entire world. And I, I didn't um, end up reading much of the associated uh, fiction that went along with all this, so I didn't really form a strong bond to any of the other worlds. I looked up for Planescape how many supplements had been released. And in our last episode, we talked about Warhammer Fantasy Roleplay. And in the first part of the podcast, I basically talked about all the supplements that had ever been released. And I was able to do that in the the scope of one podcast. For Planescape, which I think was one of the, the smaller supplements in terms of volume of releases, there was more stuff released for Planescape, one of the settings, than all of Warhammer Fantasy Roleplay got in its whole first edition. It's one of the reasons, again, I didn't bother doing a settings initial podcast because there are just so many supplements that have been released for all these different settings. If you just take the big ones like Greyhawk, Forgotten Realms, Dragolance, I mean, you are talking dozens of supplements there that I think the word prodigious springs to mind in terms of how well they churned out material for those. On that note, do you guys have any favorite modules that you ever played through? You know, those little 32-page and sometimes longer uh, paperbacks that they used to release? Any ones that stand out for you? I3 to I5, my, my friend. So this, this, this was by the same people who did the Dragonlance, Tracy and Hickman, or I can't remember, I'm sorry. But they, they weren't setting Dragonlands, but it was the Pharaoh Seas, Desert of Desolation, I think it got called in the end. And it was three linked modules all set in like a fictional Egypt, basically. So the first one module you have is called Pharaoh. You've got to go and get 
basically contacted by the ghost of a dead pharaoh who wants you to loot his tomb. And as part of that, you end up freeing a free tea that's going to lay waste or everything. And then the subsequent modules follow along after that, and where you've got to kind of you go and try and hunt down and, and free a jinn to fight Ifrit, and that goes horribly wrong. And then you end up sailing in ships across a sea of glass to a tomb of a wizard who's a real smart and kind of probably should have dealt with it before he died and you had to resurrect him. Yeah, I remember playing those. They were, they were the original um, AD&D as well, so they've stuck with me a long time. I think there was even a gnome in one of the modules who was, uh, was yeah, there were some silly bits. There were some very silly bits you would not have approved, Ian. There was a gnome who was digging his way through the pyramid with a spoon. There were exploding pineapples, but also one of the best traps I think I came across, which was a, a pit trap, a traditional pit trap, but it had a teleport at the bottom and a portal at the top, so you fell forever. Which was, you know, you just see the same things going past you all the time. And that was, that was kind of cool. There was some good bits in it. It was like a time stop tra- uh, adventure in the last module as well. That was quite clever. Things you had to do because everything was frozen in time. So you couldn't open the doors and you couldn't you know, go through a bead curtain because it was all sealed in time. And there was some real faffing around to do. But it was just, it was just nice and well thought out in a lot of ways. It wasn't perfect by a stretch of the imagination. But yeah, definitely had fun playing that one. I'm not going to lie, you know, I tried to think long and hard about any specific and, and none came to mind of things that really stuck out because there were so many over the different editions. But what I would say is the things that the, the D&D, I'd call them artifacts or, you know, adventures or stories that really came to mind most for me were more things that were along the PC games. Things like the Baldur's Gate stories, you know, Neverwinter Nights. Eye of the Beholder, SSI games, you know, those, those kind of stuck out to me more just from a nostalgia memory perspective. I know those are not the modules per se, but it's more just like there were D&D stories and being a computer game nerd as much as I am, they really struck a chord. And also the books, like obviously there, there've been a wealth of D&D stories over the years and the, like there's a variety of different novel sets that really, you know, Ari Salvatore series, as mentioned earlier, Dragonlance books. Those are, those, those are the stories in D&D that really that, that always come back to mind for me because uh, they stick with you and you, can, you, you don't have to go back and find a group to replay an adventure. You, know, you can just go back and even these days, just go grab the PDF and read. They don't always reread as well as they do when you think about them when they were a kid. And that's not going to lie. I tried to reread some of them recently and they just they didn't they don't they don't read read as well as a as a grown adult as they did when you were a teenager or a kid for sure yeah i found that the one that that i looked up for this podcast and i remember playing this but it was keep on the borderlands that was a b2 you sometimes get those introductions in games where they say this is what a gm does and you get the usual bit about you have to be the player's eyes and ears, blah, blah, blah. This um, is probably written, it's the most florid description that I've seen of what a GM does. It says, as DM, you are to become the shaper of the cosmos. It is you who will give form and content to all the universe. You will breathe life into stillness, giving meaning and purpose to all the actions which are to follow. The others in your group, Will assume the roles of individuals and play their parts, but each can only perform within the bounds you will set. It is now up to you to create a magical realm filled with danger, mystery, and excitement, complete with countless challenges. And you then get an adventure where you, I think you're beating up a bunch of kobolds. No pressure, right? Yeah, exactly. I had a different kind of, of um, 
luxury, I'll say, and that is having some really fantastic GMs with very creative uh, ideas about their own worlds. So, and some of the things that they brought to the game that I don't see in most modules or didn't see until we started getting into the 3.5 uh, era was um, that people did things for reasons. There, we, we didn't have an evil wizard who was evil because he was evil, you know, that, that he just hates people and wants everyone to die. We had people who did things for political reasons or because they were seeking revenge or, you know, for, for I'll say human reasons, even though in most cases they weren't human, humans, but they did things for reasons. And we didn't do a lot of dungeon crawls. And it's funny, I've, I've developed a bit of an aversion or distaste for these massive, just crazy maze date dungeons. Sigourney Weaver's character in Galaxy Quest. Okay, so think about that. Galaxy Quest, remember? And they're trying to get to the core. And there's this big, you know, big slamming things all around. And it's just her, her reaction to all it is much my reaction to, to these maze adventures. Who builds these things? Who, what, what logical sense does any of this make? Why would you do this? And I understand a big part of the game is suppressing those ideas and just saying, you know, okay, look, it's a fantasy world. People do things for fantasy reasons. And there's just plain evil in the world and some evil people do things this way. I haven't developed a good ability to just suppress things that much. I, I'm going to ask, why would you do this? What, do, what sense does it make to make a really dangerous trap in a hallway that everybody walks through every day? You know, and the, the, those sorts of things, you know, those things, these things occur to me, right? So anyway, I, I, I realize your question is about the modules. In some cases, I'm kind of glad I didn't play a lot of the modules because I just spent too much time griping about those things. I'm inclined to agree with you. It was one of the reasons that I always found Warhammer fantasy roleplay more appealing than D&D, and that was for the motivation side of things. To prove that I'm not a filthy promise breaker, Steve mentioned last episode that um, I should run the Enemy Within campaign because he'd never played in it. Um, Steve, what am I running for you at the moment? A podcast. No. Uh, yes, we, <laughs> we just started. We did our first session of um, the Enemy Within last week. Uh, I'm really excited about it. And one of the great things about that is that the various quote-unquote villains you come across all have very human motivations for doing things. Whereas in a lot of D&D modules, the villains are static things that happen to be there and you have to bypass. One of the most famous or maybe infamous is the term uh, modules ever written for D&D was Tomb of Horrors. I think it was module S1, S standing for special. And it was one that Gary Gygax wrote because I think he wanted to run at a convention or something along those lines, but basically challenge people who claimed that they had amazing characters and they could overcome all sorts of trials and tribulations. But it's essentially a very well-constructed dungeon, but there's traps and there's monsters and there's puzzles to figure out. But it's very much in the mold of this thing is here for you to overcome rather than there being much in the way of a rhyme or reason for, for why it's being there in the first place. And I think that probably speaks to two very different styles of play. You know, to me, role-playing is you have this character, you're, you're effectively living their life, and 
at the risk of sounding like some sort of pretentious melodramatic actor, whenever I play a game, I want my character to have a motivation for doing something. Whereas I think the classic dungeon crawl is much more akin to a video game where you've got to accept that your motivation is to go down there, kick in the doors, grab as much treasure as you can, and then get out of there before you die horribly. And I think you see that in a lot of the earlier ones where it's a lot more accepting for for GMs to have players die. And it almost feels that they've been set up to, to test the players in that respect. I certainly think that's true of the sort of very early stuff. I think, you know, things have developed that people expect a bit more these days in terms of, as you say, motivations of the bad guys and the not quite so cookie-cutter, two-dimensional kind of... While I think your uh, your statement is true of the early days, I think it's come a long way since then. Tomb of Horrors would actually go down as probably my least favourite <laughs> ever. No, yeah, it's horrible. But 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 it was designed to be, you know? It was, it was specifically there as a, it's almost like how far can you get in a certain amount of time? Don't you know? Don't run it for any players you care about. You know, it was it's specifically designed to kill you in as many interesting ways as it possibly can. But yeah, you're right. Things things have changed, and people expect an awful lot more. Uh, that's one of the reasons I really like the Eberron saying is it seemed a lot more morally grey, a lot more morally um, ambiguous. So, and I guess that comes from the the slightly noir esque kind of aspects of it. So. And it's because you're a recovering goth. That's why. Yeah, two podcasts, two podcasts in a row. We've mentioned that people yeah. start talking. The well, I, I think also something else that reflects that is the de-emphasis of alignment in in five. Uh, alignment's just kind of a thing you have. You know, it's either you have freckles or you don't, but it doesn't really play into. I mean, you know, the, the detect good and evil spells are still there, but where in the past it it seemed i mean it was one of the first topics brought up it was like in chapter one your character is going to have this type of alignment and if you have this alignment you can't be one of these and now that's very much back burner because i think our tastes in media and our tastes in in what we want to experience we appreciate the the gray we we appreciate the nuance things aren't cookie cutter and black and white anymore i think that's very true i remember the old edition you had alignment languages that you could speak a special language that only other good people could speak and evil people could speak an evil language, which just seems absolutely absurd. And a lot of the older alignment stuff seems very, very much tacked on. It was almost like people didn't, I think it, it probably came out of the fact that people didn't really know what role-playing was and it was a tool to make role-playing easier for people to say, okay, your guy's a good guy. He'll probably do these things. Whereas nowadays, as you say, I think people have a much fondness is maybe not the word, but a much better grasp of moral shades of grey. If you you look at, for example, superhero genre, a lot of the more interesting characters are the ones that have those shades of grey, where they're not, you know, Captain America good or Superman good or or Lex Luthor evil. It's the ones that have a moral moral ambiguity about them, which I think is is missing in a lot of early D and D. Those goblins were just evil because it said so on page blah blah blah. Now, one thing that everyone has in D and D is a favourite class and or race, or if you're playing basic, your race is your class as well. Do you guys have any particular favourite that stands out? Is there anything that's your go to every single time you play? So I always gravitated to human. You know, I. I 
not because they were boring, just from a flexibility perspective. Uh, they didn't have any major disadvantages other than, <laughs> you know, the old night vision always kind of burns you. But um, a, c- a combination of a human and a ranger, ranger has always, I, I've always been fascinated by, you know, kind of like that, that hunter kind of character, especially the dual wielding option that you have with that. I never, I, I was never really the Legolas bow guy, but the the dual wielding dervish type character always kind of put me in. I, I tend to gravitate towards that whenever I'm trying a new character for the first time in the system. And what minimax monstrosity did you like, Jason? Wow. Because the obvious answer to that would be elves, right? Because <laughs> anything you can do, an elf can do better. I don't know. So I've, I've played it for so long. I don't think, I mean, I would say generally a wizard at some description, but I've played for so long. I'm now find myself just like, what, what does the party need or what does, what fits best with what we're trying to, to do? So latest game that's kind of started up a little while ago, you know, I let everybody else was discussing characters and exchanging emails. And I was like, well, tell you what, guys, I'll just sit back and you will find out what we need. And invariably that ends up being the kind of cleric. Can't be a bit of religious zealotry when you're role playing. That's the one (laughs) thing I would say, you know, as you well know, my war machine kind of men off past present. Gives you a lot of role playing options, and and the other great thing about playing a religious guy in in like D and D is, you know, there's no ambiguity. Everybody believes. There's no atheists, right? Because you know, <laughs> if you're an atheist, and I'm going to, you know, cure wounds or stop your disease or remove that curse, you, you, you're going to believe. It's just it's just the case of it. So, yeah, I kind of magic is a big factor. I like to play a character who's got magic. As I said before about uh, being the kind of party's Batman by being the 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 wizard. So, you know, you've got all this utility spells that make people climb walls or have a, a, a little extra dimensional hut in which case you can take a rest without getting molested by wandering monsters and things like that. So spells, spells and more spells. I'm going to split the difference between uh, Jason and Steve and say half elf. <laughs> <laughs> I do. I've always just kind of enjoyed them. A um, little bit of foot in both worlds sort of thing. And uh, if I if I wasn't doing half elf, I'd probably sorry lean more toward elf. But I like the Dexy types. But uh, I I've always wanted a good, effective, interesting ranger, and I would be more the Legolas type than the dual wielder. But I just they it's in so many of the the versions, the ranger is just impaired. Um, just a, a fighter with a bow is going to be always more interesting, I think, than, than most rangers. I do like a bit of magic. If I were to talk about favorite class, it was a short-lived class in 3.5 called a factotum, and so there would be some knowing nods on that one. The factotum was a character who could start each day and say, you know what, I'm feeling kind of ranger today or I'm feeling kind of roguish today, or whatever. And they could move their stats around slightly, and they could basically gain some abilities for that day that would be more uh, what the party needed. It's kind of really a jack-of-all-trades. They'd have a limited number of uses of everything, but in a pinch, they were, they were pretty interesting. Uh, I, I just, it was a multi-tool type of role, and I really liked it. I also like the, the, the skill-heavy, knowledge-heavy roles. To, uh, to just kind of be the, the okay, well, what does so-and-so think? You know, and they, they'd turn to me and, and ask, you know, my opinion on things. Know-it-all without acting like a know-it-all. <laughs> yeah. I always ended up basically just playing a human fighter. And I think it comes from the very first time I played. And I said, what would be easiest to learn? 
And the guy was like, yeah, be a human fighter. There's not a lot that you have to learn. And I think I just stuck ever since. <laughs> I, always, I think I was just too lazy to learn what all those spells did or you know, how to go around healing people. Is there anything you guys categorically wouldn't want to play? I know Jason said that he's very easygoing and will play whatever the party finds most useful, but is there anything that you just think, oh, no, I, I, don't, want to, I don't want to be that? As a rule, a cleric. That just that just does nothing for me. I, <laughs> I was I think it was Jason. I think made a good point that there are no atheists in D and D. And I well, if they are, they're delusional because I mean there is evidence, right? <laughs> so, <laughs> but um, uh, that just the I don't know. It's not the way I, I prefer to play. Other than that, I'm, oh, not a paladin. I know there are better ways of playing paladins, but they always just seem to be buzzkill. From a cleric perspective, actually, you mentioned cleric because I, I I would from just to answer the question, I'd say I pretty much would go with Jason these days. Is I, I from a flexibility and kind of chill perspective, I, I really just want to play with let other people kind of pick the pick the classes I like because I like to get a new experience. But from a cleric perspective, the domain system in Five E I will bring up as a, an opportunity to tune a cleric to be able to still be the healer of the party, but have a lot more flexibility and to have more flavor than your your old school generic cleric. I just played in my most recent game. Uh, I played a war domain cleric, and uh, I believe the phrase "murder cleric" was thrown around about my character because I was always charging into combat, getting flank flanking with someone, and doing crazy amounts of damage. And at low levels, that's possible with with that type of cleric. It, get, it evens out later on. You become more of a the healer stand back type because you just can't keep up with the with the fighters. But like at low levels, it's a lot of fun to play a war cleric. It's uh, definitely good times, but yeah, I'll play whatever. I like to I like to have a variety and uh, learn new things. And I will say about human as well. Something I find about the benefit of human is I can see through a human's eyes and grok the world a lot easier than I can through one of the non-humans if I'm trying to learn the setting. And that makes a lot less stress for me trying to like learn a new game or a new setting if I don't have if I can at least have a closer empathy with with the race I'm playing. Listen, gents, thank you very much for your time. We could probably talk about this for hours, but sadly, I would be put to death by my wife if I took that opportunity. Before we finish, one of the things I was going to ask is, did any of you have any um, shout-outs to either any projects you're doing or anything you'd recommend, any podcasts, YouTube, anything that you think our uh, listenership would be interested in? I, I don't take in much of the other media i do still catch critical role i think that they, they there is n- i i've never seen as good an effective um dm as uh, matt mercer but that's kind of like saying mcdonald's is a is a restaurant you should try sometime you know it's like okay you know everybody does that I and mean, you got that so I, I don't feel like there's a big endorsement there I will second a point to the uh, D&D Beyond. I'm very impressed with D&D Beyond and how they have embraced the tabletop part of it, made digital what makes sense to be made digital without trying to force you to use your computer to play during every session. It just struck a really great balance and their platform works really well. And I think I'll chime in real quick about just to echo a critical role, but also just people should start, I think, if they have time and the, the, the desire to check out Twitch and to check out a variety of different role-playing live stream if for no other reason then it, it exposes a whole new sort of world of 
content for people and it's it's no longer stigmatized there's just just so many of them critical role is the highest profile but there's so many really solid groups playing on on twitch and it's an interesting experience to delve into those communities and just learn more about different angles and different way people play so highly recommend it not to really kind of shout out to anything, but just to kind of, you know, there's, there's a lot of us about, we've all got real lives. We're all far too old and, you know, it's hard to get groups together these days. So a group of mine have been using fantasy grounds for D and D great old product. I think the DM has paid for it, but you know, most of us can use it for free and we can play entire games of D and D online. And sometimes that's an awful lot easier than getting people around a table. It's no substitute. I heartily recommend face to face as a, as, as the priority, but if you can't do it, it's not a bad shout. I'm going to mention a couple of things that have come to my attention. In our last section of the podcast, I kind of uh, dedicated it to Dave Anderson because Gary Gagax often gets the credit for, for D&D and it, it was really uh, built off the back of a lot of work that uh, Dave Anderson did before him. However, I was contacted on Twitter by um, a fellow who uses the Twitter handle at Blackmoor underscore film. I'll put all these in the, in the show notes, incidentally. But he actually produced a, a film, a short film called Secrets of Blackmoor, which is available on Vimeo. And it talks about the whole background to what led to what we know as, as D&D nowadays. I, I actually rented it, watched it, and it's absolutely fascinating um, I think it took a lot of time to make. It's very polished. It's very professional. It's definitely worth a watch because it, it really highlights the history of the hobby from its Napoleonic wargaming roots to what it is nowadays. The other thing that I want to give a, a shout out to is we talked earlier about the difference between role-playing, R-O-L-E, and role-playing, R-O-L-L, where the latter is much more, you have a dungeon there, you're going to explore it, you're going to kill things, you're going to take the treasure, and at the end, that's it, that's what you've done. Um, there's a product out there called Old School Essentials, produced by a company called Necrotic Gnome. Uh, they're at Necrotic Gnome on Twitter, um, which is essentially the 1981 basic D&D, &D, but polished up and reworked for the modern day and it makes no pretenses about what it is it's there for you to design dungeons which you and your friends can go and explore and you can bring back all the treasure you can kill the evil monsters and level up and in this day and age of video games where that's essentially what you do it's an absolutely excellent way of getting people into the hobby but it's also a very good product for people who want to scratch that itch that they're not really particularly interested in melodrama and character development and being last of a dying race they just want to kick doors down and kill orcs it's a very very good product for that so i heartily recommend people taking a look at that the final thing i'm going to recommend since we have a world famous games designer on uh, the, the podcast is a board game called gravwell which uh cory here designed and published do you want to give us the two-minute elevator pitch about Gravwell, Corey? Sure, sure. Um, it was uh, published by Renegade Games. Uh, it's available. Um, you can get it on Amazon and, you know, all over. But it's called Gravwell, G-R-A-V-W-E-L-L. -L. It's short for Gravitational Well. Uh, it is a light filler game. It is the game, I designed it to be the game you played while you're waiting for everybody else to show up to play the real game. Um, in it, you are captaining a ship. 
um, represented by a pawn on a linear track and a spiral track. You're trying to escape from the center and um, work your way out to the edge end of the spiral uh, where there's a warp gate before it closes. Um, the trick is your engines don't work, but your tractor beams do. So you will propel yourself forward by using your tractor beams to attract yourself toward the ship that's, uh, you know, you slingshot past each other. Um, the trick is the, the your tractor beams lock onto whichever ship is closest to you. So if a sh the closest ship to you is behind you, you're going to move backwards instead of forwards. Um, each round you play a card, um, the card indicates how far you'll go, and it also, also indicates the order in which you'll play. And um, if, you know, so if you are just ahead of somebody else, you'll want to play a card that will play later in the round to give them a chance to pass you before you attract yourself to them. Uh, it's a bunch of slingshotty, second-guessing fun, um, and it plays in about 20 minutes. Um, it's won some awards. Um, it was published in 2013. Um, and anyway, they, there's a new version coming out. Um, I can't get into much of the details of it, but a lot of people ask for the, right now, the current version only supports four players. The new version will support six players. Um, so, uh, people were asking for that. And then now there'll be some individual ship powers. So each player will have a unique ship that can do things that the other ships can't. So, um, looking forward to that. That'll be, it, it won't be in 2020, but it'll be probably in 2021. So. As someone who's played Gravwell, I can heartily recommend it. It's a lot of fun, and as Cody says, it plays in about 20 minutes, which is an absolutely fantastic uh, level of time for any board game when you don't have the time to sit and set up Arkham Horror and play for 12 hours or however long that usually takes. So thanks very much, gents. Pleasure having you on the podcast. Hopefully we'll see you again next time. Cheers, thanks man. so much. Thanks, thanks a lot. Thank goodness that's done. And that was our D&D roundtable. I'd like to take the time again to thank Jason, Steve and Cody for joining us. We're a podcast about old school role-playing games and if you enjoyed this episode, please get in touch with us on Twitter at SavePodcast or email us at roll.2.save.pod at gmail.com. You can also find us on Facebook by searching for Roll to Save. If you enjoyed this episode, please be sure to leave us a review on your podcast directory of choice. We really appreciate them and it helps with visibility. Thanks again for listening.